So imagine stepping out of your day-to-day life and just dropping yourself into a gorgeous 130-acre natural playground for three and a half days of learning and laughing and moving your body and calming your brain and just reconnecting with people who see the world the same way that you do and just accept you as you are. So that's what we've actually created with our Camp GLP experience. We've brought together this lineup of inspiring teachers from art to entrepreneurship and writing to meditation and pretty much everything in between. And it's this beautiful way to fill your noggin with ideas to live and work better and to fill your heart and with this rare opportunity to create you know, the type of friendships and stories you thought you pretty much left behind decades ago. And it's all happening at the end of August, just 90 minutes from New York City. And more than half, actually well more than half the spots are already gone at this point. So be sure to grab your spot quickly because our final $100 early bird discount ends June 15th, 2016. After that, it goes up to full price. So you can learn more at goodlifeproject.com slash cam or just click the link in the show notes now. Sometimes you can make a decision that's good for sort of the whole organization and it's not good for a small percentage of people. And that's a real leadership sort of defining moment. Are you committed to the culture or are you committed to people in such a way that you'll let them change the culture? So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but a whole bunch of the rules that govern the way we work, especially if you work in a large organization, seem to actually not really fuel great productivity, great performance, total happiness. So the question is, why do they still exist? You know, we've been working as as a human race in various shapes and forms for a really long time. And now we've got these organizations, companies, groups that have been built, and then we have rules and cultures. So why do so many of those rules, why do so many of sort of like the guidelines that we live and breathe by for the vast majority of our waking hours Why are they very often so dysfunctional? This is part of the conversation that I dive into with today's guest, David Berkus, who is a professor, um, a speaker, and the author of a really cool book called Under New Management. I hope you enjoy. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So it's good to be hanging out with you. You know, what's interesting is what's occurred uh, to me is we've actually spoken before a couple times, I guess, and I've sort of been looking through your work. And I want to talk about your work because I think it's a really interesting intersection between just the human condition and how we contribute to the world, um, especially the new one, you know, because it's, there are a lot of like really tight areas to dive into, but it occurs to me also, I really know very little about you. I know your professional <laughs> resume, but I want to, uh, so I want to go back in time a little bit. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, how, how much, how, how yeah, much time like do you have? Four help or five hours. No. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, right now you're you're an author, you're a speaker, you are a professor. And so fill that in for me a little bit. First. Yeah. So ironically, the professor part's the only part that wasn't planned. Ah. You know, like normally uh, you have the opposite. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, it's the total opposite. So I, you know, from like 14 years old was interested in writing. I went to uh, undergrad for writing. I actually was supposed to. We're not far from it. I was supposed to go to Fordham at Lincoln Center, right? And a lot yeah. of different financial aid stuff didn't line up, et cetera. So then I sort of scrambled and tried to find another place that met that kind of fit, but mm -hmm. applied all up and down the Northeast area and um, ended up going to Tulsa, Oklahoma to go to Oral Roberts University. Of that is a far cry from Fordham in New York City. <laughs> well, so, so, so mission wise, it's really not, you know, Oral Roberts is a, a evangelical school, right, but Fordham it's very mission founded. Right. Yeah, but yeah. it's, but, and, and there's a lot of overlap between that. So oh, that was, interesting. What, but I mean, it's definitely different in terms of reputation, in terms of location yeah, yeah. and all those other things. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I rolled the dice. I figured worst case scenario, I'll transfer to Fordham now that I can <laughs> afford it. Cause I went to a cheaper school. And you know, when you're 18 years old, you only know so many different professions that are out there. Right. So, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, my, I have a four-year-old now. And, you know, he knows that cops are a thing, that firefighters are a thing, et cetera. Yeah, it's so, like the big five. Things. Right. Yeah. yeah. Doctor, doctors, firefighters, yeah. whatever. That's all he knows is. So clearly he wants to be a firefighter. Right. So I think it's the same thing when you're 18. When you think writer, like you think novelist, right. Or poet. Yeah, probably. You know, one or the other. So you go to school for that and then. And, and also poverty. <laughs> right. Well, no, it's, it's not till you get to university that you realize the poverty part. And that's what I realized, right? I also was on a road trip and it's funny because in a weird quirk of history, this person actually teaches in the office next to me, hmm. right? But I was on a road trip and I was sitting next to somebody. I'm like, oh, so what's your major, right? And she said she was studying organizational communication. I was like, oh, what's that? Whatever. And we started talking. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. That's really kind of cool. So I took, a, I basically signed up for a class in that. When you're an English major, you have a ton of elective credits, right? Because mm -hmm. they're kind of like, we don't know how you're going to get a whole degree out of this. So just take whatever you want. And so I ended up taking that, taking multiple courses, I ended up doing that as a second major. And this was around the time that like Gladwell had started, yeah. right? Which sort of proved Gladwell, your early Dan Pink books sort yeah, of yeah. proved that like there is a genre called application of social science. Right, right, right. right. And that's what I found just fascinating. Hmm. Right? So I, I came in thinking I was going to be a novelist, came out knowing like, I'm going to write books like this. I'm going to write nonfiction books about, you know, I would, I would, you could call it the human condition or about social science or whatever. Right. So I knew that was always going to happen. And then um, I, I met a girl there, which is probably why I still live there. Met a girl who wanted to go to medical school, student loan on in-state way better than out of state. So we've been there ever since. And uh, because she was in medical school, I went to grad school because you can work full time. You can go to grad school full time and still have 20 hours a week to kill. My <laughs> wife is in medical school. So that's what we did. So I went to grad school to study organizational psychology, Just was bored basically when that was over. So started a doctorate. And then again, the whole idea was like, maybe I'll get a doctorate and I'll do some adjunct work while I'm building the 
the platform and writing the books and whatever. And then, so it, it like the goal was never because a lot of times when you sort of like you go for the PhD, um, a lot of that is with it with teaching in mind. Like I need this yeah. to actually get a no. I mean, I went to a very specific practitioner doctoral program and everything. It was it was geared toward the working professional type huh. person who might want to adjunct or might just want to charge more because they have doctorate right, 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 right. right. And so, and that was the goal. I mean, I, I, the, the traditional sort of research-based PhD would have been great, but I couldn't move. My wife was in med school, right? We, where we are mm-hmm. is where we are. So did all of that. And then uh, the professor part was the accidental. Somebody retired at, at my alma mater that I moved to Oklahoma to go to. Somebody retired. And, and uh, oh, the part I left out, my wife's father has been a professor there for like 30 years. Yeah. Right? So I married into like the broader clan of got university it, faculty. It. So I was on the short list of people that they called and were like, have you ever thought about teaching? I was like, yeah, I mean, let's try it. Let's see what happens. And mm-hmm. so I've been there ever since. So that's the accidental part, right? Which is funny because most people say, like, did you ever want to write a book? I'm like, yeah, every day since I was 14. It's the uh, professor part that was totally accidental. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's so funny because the story is almost always the exact opposite. Yeah. So what would you actually consider the center of what you do right now? Or would you not consider, like, is it not a hub and spoke or is it really like a blend of well, different things? I mean, I guess. So this is, I'm going to sound... I'm going to sound enlightened. The I mean, the center of what I do is I'm Jana's husband and I'm Lincoln and Harrison's dad. Yeah. But for occupationally, I think the center of it, I'd have to say, was the writing. Like right. I, I did all of the graduate school in order to better understand psychology and social science so I could write about it better. You know, and so it never was the idea of doing the research. And I'm, I, I love this. Actually, I was talking to Mitch Joel about this a couple weeks ago. I'm finally at the place with my writing that I'm comfortable saying I'm a crap researcher. Like a, as a as a doctorate, as a faculty member, all of that. So I'm terrible at it. I hate it. You know, I'll never be Angela Duckworth. It's not going to happen. But maybe I can be really good writing about Angela Duckworth or whomever mm. else, right? And so that's that's the goal. So that's at the center of it. And that fuels everything else. I mean, that that fuels the ability to bring really cool insights into the classroom. That fuels the speaking. That fuels everything. So Yeah. I don't want to skip over what you just said before that, though, which is like the, the real center of everything, you know, in sort of yeah. like the enlightened man standpoint as you're, <laughs> you're a dad and husband. Because it's funny because in every professional bio that I have, it always starts with dad and husband. And I get some funny looks sometimes, you know, if somebody, we both speak, right? right. So like, it, you know, my bio says in the beginning, you know, the, the, the speaker bio, you know, dad, husband, and dot, 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 whatever else. Right. Um, and to me, it's the most natural thing in the world because that is the starting point for everything. And all the professional stuff happens to be fun stuff piled on top of it. Right. But, um, so it's interesting that you just led with that also. Well, and, you know, I think a lot of it is the the only way you can sort of have enough energy to sort of fuel it all is if you put all that first. You know, I have, I have a lot of friends and I even have family members who definitely chose that kind of career at center. And then things sort of disintegrate and, and you just, you're left holding pieces and going, why? Right. You know, and I'm okay with the fact, like, I, I, let's, let's be honest. I live in a city that makes the top 50 cities in America possible, hmm. right? But it's an amazing place to raise children. And it's where my wife's family has been sort of from. And so I'm okay with it, right? Because that's what's important, right? And it, and it means limits on probably what I'll ever be able to charge in speaking and how big of an audience I'll ever have and that sort of stuff. But I mean, at the end of the day, like for, the first book came out, I remember this vividly. And within about three weeks, we were on CBS This Morning just by fluke, right? Like an article got passed around. It got viral. A producer found it. Three days later, I'm in New York. Yeah. And then, so we're in that. It's like a 6.30 in the morning interview. We go right from there back to LaGuardia, right? The third world airport known as LaGuardia. And I fly back to Tulsa and I fly back. My wife was working at the hospital that day. So my in-laws were watching my, at the time, the only son. And we go back and like, 
my son has basically two things to share with me, right? One, daddy, I saw you on TV. Two, I have a poopy diaper. <laughs> right? <laughs> but like, that's perfect. Right. You know, I wouldn't want just the first part, right? right. I wouldn't want a, somebody who only knows their dad from watching him on TV. Like, I, I love the, the boldness to it. Yeah, bothness. What an awesome word. Um, <laughs> well, Nilafer already stole onlyness. I know. So I, I got to like, go I with thinking, boldness. I was like, when she first told me, yeah, <laughs> like the whole the whole concept of onlyness, I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just going to add ness to everything. And that works, actually. Yeah. In a ness kind of way. So you basically develop a career now, uh, speaking, writing, and you mentioned that, you, that you're on number what book? Two, three? This, so this is two. Okay. By by real count. I mean, early, early on as a blogger podcaster, we did like a self-published book that I shouldn't even be talking about now because I hope no one ever finds out about it, really. <laughs> I have a secret book like that too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. See, you nobody, know what it's nobody like. Nobody knows. Right. So let's, this is the, this is the second real book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long ago was uh, the self-published one? <laughs> was it like in a distant, <laughs> distant past or? It was probably 2010, maybe. I don't Oh, it wasn't that long ago, actually. Well, I mean, that's... <laughs> I didn't have a career in 2010. (laughs) It was pre-legit, man. Can we move on? Right. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I could tell you, it was was called the Portable Guide to Leading Organizations. And you can get a copy of it on Amazon for $99 because somehow there's (laughs) still copies floating out there. And because there's there's no no competition for them. Three left that my mom didn't buy. (laughs) Right. I mean, actually, like, there's a ton of them in, in, in a box because I can't bring myself to throw them away. But then like some guy on Amazon has one. Yeah. And so you can buy it for $99. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a but similar. don't buy it. Please don't buy it. <laughs> I have a similar one. I'm not even going to say the name of it, but it, but mine was like 10 No, 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 no. No deal. No deal. You <laughs> coaxed on. it out of me. It's the Especially as a marketer, it's like the worst name in the world. It was called The Long Hard Fix. Because um, I want you the opposite of like the quick and easy. I was like, no, let's be real about what this will take. And of yeah. course, like not realizing the marketing side. I can like, totally see why that nobody wants sell. honesty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it comes <laughs> to that. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you can't buy that anywhere anymore. By the way, I'm gonna look. All right. So you're um, bopping around the world right now, and uh, I, I want to uh, actually, you know, you and I actually, I think our first actual conversation actually was around the career of speaking. Yeah. And would you consider yourself, because I know, I think a lot of our listeners are maybe like speaker curious. Would you consider yourself sort of like a professional circuit speaker, like a full-time traveling around? Uh, Well, so the deep secret is there is no circuit, (laughs) right? There isn't. It's not like... But, but but I always just assumed I've been outside of the club, man. You yeah. that's just that's not so, even a club. So here's my theory. My theory is there are, there are writers who speak and there are speakers who write because it sort of flows the speaking, right. right? And it's hard to tell the difference. But when you get into it, you can kind of tell hmm. who's in it because the model is the speaking and who really does want to craft like one good idea every three to four years, right? And then ride that out to speaking. I hope I fall into that category. I hope I'm the writer who speaks. Yeah, well, I mean, you definitely like Gladwell. Make, right, exactly. Yeah. You definitely make more speaking, which whichever model you pick, you're going to make more from the speaking side. It's just a question of what do you focus your time on? Yeah. You know, and so I focus in on the writing and then I'm lucky enough to get the writing, get some level of demand that actually makes it all possible. But I'm definitely not that like, got to have a gig booked every single week, if right. not multiple ones, et cetera, type person. So you're a writer who speaks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Not a member of the national speakers or anything like that, whatever. I'm just I'm trying to be a writer yeah. who speaks. And you also brought up this really interesting thing, which is sort of like the Gladwell, the, there are people who I think become known as the X person where like X is a particular topic and you just keep going deeper into that topic. And like your five books over 12 years are just different nuances of that topic. And then there's right. the Gladwell style where it's like, no, 
I'm going to latch on to one thing that's, that's just really cool for, you know, like three, two, three, four years, go really deep into it, explore it, and then latch on to another thing that's just really yeah, cool. Yeah, the intellectual so ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and I have that too. You know, the first, I, in the, you can see kind of a through line throughout them. I actually pinned, I did an interview one time with Daniel Pink and I tried to tell him why all of his books are linked. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can do the same with me, although it's only, a, it's a chain of two links, so it doesn't really count yet. And I, I like that sort of better. Right. And that, again, was the goal. And and you see it with I, I truthfully, I think the, the books and the ideas that stand the test of time are the result of that, as opposed to I mean, you'll you'll probably sell more in the short term if you've got that same idea that you just rewrite every couple of years, mm. put a different title on it. It's got a picture of, you know, you've got a picture of you on the cover with your you know arms crossed, et cetera, like that. You might sell more in the short term, but I don't think you create a work that that lasts. I mean, I know you don't create a work that lasts because if it did, you wouldn't have to do it three years later. Right. Right. So I'd rather do that other route for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, the the idea of, um, I'm just picturing like the arms crossed on the title, the, the cover of the book. I'm like, I'm not on the cover of any of my books. If I, I mean, if I ever have a book like that, just throw it at me. Like, <laughs> invite me into the studio to talk about it and then peg me in the head. But it goes book. towards the same thing, which is, you know, like, is the book fundamentally selling you as a positioning mechanism versus the idea right. that you're really hoping to put forward? And I've, I've had this, I'm sure you've had this debate also because you're a writer and a speaker with different people who are like, oh, you have to have your cover on, your picture right. on the cover of the book or no, like, you know, it's not about that. Right. No, no, totally. And, and I mean, I even get it too. I've, I've had this fight with both of editors for both books where they say like, well, we need to hear more about you and what this means for you. And that yeah. sort of thing. People aren't buying me. Like my job is to tell a story, a story of an executive or a story of a researcher or whatever. I'm not the center of it. I'm the storyteller. I'd rather get out of the way mm. and do that. And so, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm sacrificing short-term sales, but I don't, I mean, I don't think I look good in six by nine on the cover of a book anyway. <laughs> so I have, I mean, I'm a podcaster, right? I've got a face for podcasting. Well, and well, so which brings up the whole idea of like podcasting and you being on the other side of the mic also, which flows into what you were just saying of, you know, like your, you'd rather it be about the ideas and not your personal story, which also is sort of like the way that you've built your podcast too. It's like, it's yeah. an interview show, yeah. which means you're the guy asking questions, not giving the answer. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's why, I mean, like we started this with what's my story. Well, I do a good job of hiding it. Right. Cause it's yeah. not supposed to be about me. Right. right. Which, but, but it, but, but it is, I mean, yes, yes. You know, because I'm, you came in here and we've, we've known each other for a while now and we've had conversations on the phone and I knew very, and I'm like, I really, I actually want to know who you are. Um, and so do I, so that's <laughs> that problem. Then the therapy begins <laughs> right, now. Exactly. Hold on, let me set the clock, old Bill. So it's an interesting thing when you talk about creating a book, right? And and you're not selling you, you're selling the idea. And like you, you reference Gladwell out of the gate. And like, you know, Gladwell doesn't write about himself. Right. He's always telling other people's stories. But I think there is a moment where there is a deep and profound fascination with who Gladwell is as a human being. Right. Where people go like are maniacally trying to figure it out. Yeah, but how much, I mean, but exactly. How much do you know about him? You don't know. Nothing. I mean, he lives somewhere near you. Right. I, interestingly enough, I, I literally bumped into him in a cafe yesterday up like in a small town two hours north of New York City. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> he kind of stands out. <laughs> well, yeah, that's fair. No, I remember the day that I saw him on Humans of New York and was like, oh, like they found yeah, him. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> Cause I mean, I knew he sort of lived like, here. Looking for the geotag on the photo. But again, and, and you, you, you know, he has a brand where, I, I mean, he, you build a personal brand, but you build a personal brand that says like, you know, I can trust this guy not to, shove down my throat how amazing he is 
yeah. right? And that might be the, the speaker who writes model, right? But you, you can trust Gladwell. You can trust Chip and Dan Heath to talk about the science and pair it with really good examples. And the same thing with sort of Dan Pink. None of these people are trying to, when they write, tell you how amazing they are. They're just trying to do their work. And yeah. then eventually you try, you learn to trust them, even though you don't know much about them. Yeah. And I think a lot of it really goes back to what we're talking about. It's the, it's the quality of the ideas and the quality of the writing. And I sometimes wonder, I mean, I sometimes think that that's becoming more of a lost art, that there's so much focus on like the, so I think it's two things. There's, and I'm curious what you feel about this. You know, when you're writing books about big ideas or the intersection between science and, you know, like the human condition, you know, there's definitely the value of the information. There's the value of the idea. There's the value of the message. But how do you feel about the actual value of the writing as a, an integral part, not just as the medium, but as a part of the message? Right. So this is where my opinion based on being an undergraduate English major probably doesn't track with reality. <laughs> like, like I think the craft is big and huge, but there are so many parts of the craft choosing, grabbing a thesaurus, right. And choosing just the right adverb and all that sort of thing that I don't, I'm not entirely sure matters. I think people just want to hear stories. Like I think the, the, the number one best thing you can do to have a book where people say like, well, and actually, you know, jury's still out because the second book has been out today right mm -hmm. so i i might be totally wrong because everybody will read it and just slam it on amazon but you know i think in general people people want to hear a good story beginning middle and end a little bit of conflict how it was how it was resolved these are these are things that are very basic and yet i think most people especially kind of in our field of writing more toward um you know nonfiction, business applicable those sort of stuff People still, they don't do that. They want to write an outline and they want to prove a case right. or they want to use some other like model. Lead with the principle and then back right. it up with right. fact. And I, yeah. I think, you know, it doesn't, it's weird. It doesn't take a lot to be, I mean, we'll never win a Pulitzer Prize, right? But I think you can get, you can tell a good story and because it's so rare in our genre, I think people remember it more. But it's not like we're, we're grammar masters. It's not like we have our own sort of personal dictionary that's tens of thousands of words and we pick just the right one yeah. we just know the secret people want to hear a story and I, and I i guess when i think of that though i that's part of a big part of what i think of when i think about the craft it's not necessarily like do you know strong white as chicago menu of style like are you writing articulate right. you know like grammatically correct sentences god knows i don't <laughs> isn't that what editors and i'm like i'm waiting for my copy edits for my next book back right, right now i'm like yeah. dreading it because i deliberately break every rule because i'm much more interested in cadence and rhythm and the story but but I think story story craft is profoundly important, and it's something that a lot of people sort of like give you know like passing reference to in terms of like how important it is to really understand how to tell a story well. Yeah, including I would say you know with with the types of books that I write, including telling the story of research. Like it's one thing to mm. say you know in a, in a study of two hundred on you know university undergraduates such and such and such. It's a whole other thing to be like put someone in the situation yeah, that yeah. you're that we asked participants to be in or i mean the the trick that i like to do is i like to try and tell the story of the researcher so so and so was a you know this and that inspired them to start yeah. doing this study and here's what they found and all that sort of thing and um that's a really hard thing to do because academic writing in particular is not story centric whatsoever it's right. very much you know here's here's the premise here's the hypothesis here's the null hypothesis here's how we tried to prove it we didn't prove it <laughs> uh, but we still make a contribution to the literature please publish us you know 
Right. And then check the citations and, and once right. a month to make sure that you're getting something. Exactly. Um, I know. Google I, Scholar. I went through like really I'm on Google stuff. Scholar. It's sad. I still, ch- <laughs> I mean, I, I've already admitted I'm a terrible researcher and I still check my Google Scholar stats. <laughs> Um, I'm fortunate not even to be in a position where there's anything to check on Google. Now you and I are going to co-write an academic paper. I'm going to, I'm going to force it. Oh, that would be horribly scary. (laughs) Well, I was trained to write as a lawyer originally, you know, which is like very, yeah, yeah, Yeah. there is there is an absolute method. And I remember actually being hung out to dry in open court as a young lawyer because, um, I wanted to actually do a lot of storytelling, go deep into the, the people that were affected by this one particular investigation. And, um, my then supervisor was like, we have the technical violation of the law, write it up technically and present that. And I was like, but the judges, I'm pretty sure the judge is a human being and he's going to want to actually know the story of the people. Yeah. So I get up <laughs> first question. And you're Joel so, McHale in community. Right, and you make it. Yeah. Right. He's like, so uh, I'm assuming you spoke with all these people. Tell me about them. Oh, busted. <laughs> <laughs> A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Back to you and your journey and your books and stuff like that. So you got a new one out right now. We're hanging out right here and it's called Under New Management. Um, and it's it's kind of fun because there's a lot of short and sweet chapters. Um, That's my other secret in addition to telling stories. Is Yeah, I what's have, that about actually? I have, I have intellectual ADHD. So 
um, I would rather write 13 essays and then find the through line and string them all together. The same, I mean, it was the same thing with the mists of creativity. Like it was all of the only thing, all of these things have in common is that they're misconceptions about innovation and creativity. So I'm going to write in that case, I think it was 12 essays or 10, 10 essays about it. In this case, it's 13. And I think right. I'm actually in the process of thinking about book three. And again, it's like, well, I don't want to do like a, cause I think most books too, you can get the point of it. They're, they're written trusting that you'll stop right yeah. and so i kind of write in that modular format hoping that you won't right because each chapter is a standalone thing and my worst amazon review to date says on oh, this this reads like 13 different medium posts i'm like exactly <laughs> that's what i wanted you can consume it it's good and then you can move to the next one yeah but I, but i also think that that really reflects sort of a shift in consumption my sense is that that's the way that there's an expectation, maybe because that's the way that Kant has has just been developing on the web, that there's sort of this increasing expectation that when you see a larger body of work, you know, we're trained to still try and process it in small chunks because that's what we do all day, every day digitally. And it's almost like there's cognitive dissonance when it isn't laid out that way. So it's almost like you're giving people what they want and the way they're being trained to want it. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad well, thing, so but it's a thing. And it's not, it's actually not that new of a thing. Like we uh, forget that most of the great literature of the 18th and 19th century was written in serial format. You know, right. Count of Monte Cristo sure was a bunch uh, of little things and it's now granted it was one big story in public, but even then we were consuming it in little sort of chunks like that. I think it's kind of always been that way. Uh, no, very true. Let's play with some of the ideas that you play with. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to bounce around your table of contents. No, here go for it. I mean, I, I, I actually let the editor pick the list uh, of what order they come in. My, I only had one requirement, and that was picking the last one. But the rest of it's all his list. So please bounce around. All right, awesome. Um, one of them is something that uh, I think we've both probably gone into a little bit, and that's paying people to quit. There's this, uh, you know, take me into this. I, lo I love this idea. Yeah. I really do. Uh, for two reasons. Like the first is, and I know this from coming from the org psychology and HR background, like you will, the average company will spend one and a half times a person's salary training them. Right. And if you do all spend all that money and learn that they're not a good fit, it's over. Right. And so it started with Zappos. Tony Shea kind of popularized the idea and said, you know, basically at that they get the offer it's capital T capital O the offer. Right. And after a few weeks, they basically say, here's what we're about. Here's our culture. If this isn't right for you, we'll pay you. I think right now it's $4,000, about a month's salary for most of the employees. We'll pay you $4,000 to quit, right? No questions asked. No, have a good life. You know, go, we got a month's salary. You got a month to find a new job on us, right? Which is, it's one of those things where you go, it's crazy. And then you think about it for five seconds later and you go, no, it's brilliant, mm -hmm. right? But then I, I, I mean, I thought about it for two years and it's even more brilliant, right? Because it's even more brilliant when people don't take the offer, right? So most people don't take the offer. 90 plus percent of people don't take the offer. And from a psychology perspective, we have confirmation bias working, right? You're always looking to selectively filter in or filter out mm -hmm. information that confirms you made the right decision. So if you made the decision not to quit, you're selectively filtering in and filtering out reasons why you, this is a great place to work and you're highly engaged and this is a great company, why you didn't take the money and run. And so then, then it's a really good deal because I didn't even have to pay you and you, cause you turned down the offer right. and now I get a more engaged employee than had I not given you the offer. Yeah. That's probably the part that fascinates me even more than the idea of letting people self-select out is that idea of what happens when people decide to stay, you know, 
Because yeah. then you don't have to pay anything. And I mean, they, they've had up, up, well, up until really some of the recent bigger changes around holacracy, but they've had this legendary reputation for culture. You know, their internal, their external yeah. product was service, but their internal product was always culture. You know, world-class culture where they had right. no turnover and people like live together, you know, like breathe together, party together and like never wanted to leave. I wonder if like part of that is sort of like this, you know, you're, you're self-selecting a really early stage to just like completely and utterly buy into that sense of family. Well, and they, they do a, a, a huge job of hiring for culture. So they actually have like, they have two different sort of tracks of interviews. So you interview for competency, but you actually do interview for culture. They have their little culture document. I think it's 10. I forget what they all are. Yeah. The points that right, the ten points right, right. of yeah. culture. Right. And it's, you know, deliver wow and be fun, but a little weird and those kind of things. And they actually have an interview where they structure the questions deliberately to get a sense of how much these values actually resonate with a person, right? And so assuming that that weeds out a lot of people who aren't a culture fit, then you have the offer, which is, okay, so we thought you were a culture fit, but now you've seen our culture. If you think you're not a culture fit, here's our last chance to sort of decide that this isn't right for you, which is really, I mean, that's kind of what it takes to reinforce a strong culture is to make sure that the people that you bring in already resonate with it because whoever you bring in, they're going to change the culture. The right. question is if they change it in a way that's good and serves those values or degrades the, the power of those values. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting what's happening now, you know, cause the company, I guess a little over a year ago, you know, Tony made the announcement that they're basically moving entirely to holacracy as a yeah. management philosophy and basically said, you know, either you're, you're in or you're out. And from external accounts, something like, you know, 20, 25% of the people basically left. But the ones who stayed, who were going through like that level of profound shakeup, right? You, know, you got to wonder how like really deeply in they are. Well, I mean, I think the, the from the reports that I see, and again, we're, all of this is speculation, yeah. right? But a lot of the people who left were the manager roles, the ones who had been basically been used to a, a culture of being a manager, and that idea that we're going to remove that in order to better right. serve these ten things, we need to remove that layer. I could see how that wouldn't resonate with yeah. those certain people. But again, it's that commitment to culture. Like, here's where we're going, right? I mean, I this is totally unrelated to um, Zappos, but I actually just, because he's in New York on a sabbatical, I was just talking with our senior pastor at the church that I go to because we're making changes. And mm -hmm. one of our jokes is like, yeah, we should do that. We're going to lose like 5% of people, but we should do that. And it's that idea that sometimes you can make a decision that's good for sort of the whole organization and it's not good for a small percentage of people. And that's yeah. a real leadership sort of defining moment. Are you committed to the culture or are you committed to people in such a way that you'll let them change the culture, right? And it comes back to like, I'm reminded of like a Seth Godin thing about the ability to say to your customers, this isn't for you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes maybe we need the same thing for employees of being able to say like, we, we're not a good employer for everyone, but if you're this, yeah. we're great for you. Which, which kind of segues into something else that you talk about, about customers. <laughs> <laughs> I hate customers. That's what it really comes down talk, to. Talk to me about customers. I just hate customers. <laughs> the, no, so I, there's a chapter in Under Management called Putting Customers Second. And yeah. this is, again, this is not my idea. It actually comes from Vinet Nair. He's the star of the story. And he was the CEO of HLC Technologies, a, a, a really big India-based um, software and, and solutions company. And he basically realized that whether a project succeeded or failed, the, the customer had the same thing to say. Your people did awesome, right? Meaning even if they failed, their people did awesome. So it was corporate's problem that they failed. They're the sort of reason. And so he came up with what he called this um, idea of the value zone, that the value of the organization, I think this is true. 
I actually was talking to educators and talking about this, in a, even in an education system, the value is created by the people that touch the customer, whether that's a student or whether that's a mm -hmm. physical customer buying, all of the value of an organization is created in that interaction. And so whoever's in that value zone, that's who the rest of the organization ought to be accountable to, right? And, but so often we don't have that. We have a hierarchical culture where that frontline or that customer facing roles, they sort of have a divided loyalty. They have to serve the customer, but they also have to serve their manager and right. be accountable to that. And so it's a very big shift in thinking that like in, in order to put the, to give the customer everything they need, we need to make the entire organization accountable to the value zone so that we've and we put that first so that they can put the customer first. But, you know, fanatic customer loyalty turns out to actually be an effect, not a cause. Mm. Right. And the cause is putting employees in that value zone first. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's sort of like an outgrowth of a servant leadership mindset where, you know, it's like that whoever's touching the customer, you know, like the, the mindset of the person who they're, you know, quote reporting to is how can I best serve them so that they can best serve our customer? Yeah. It's a very, it's very much a reciprocal trust idea yeah. that if I invest trust in you, I'm, I'm hoping that you trust me back. So, so if it seems so logical, why isn't this the way that it just happens all the time? Well, let me, I mean, let me ask you, if you were in charge of a 10,000 person company, wouldn't you want them being accountable to you? <laughs> if I was in charge of a 10,000 person company, I'd be hiding in a corner. It probably, well, yeah. if I were in charge, it might not That's be not a 10,000 person scenario. company. But, yeah. but you know, we, so, I mean, every company that ever started ever started with a founder or founders, hmm. right? And most of the time we add new people to the organization when that founder can't keep doing the work and we keep scaling we keep finding work, but the idea is sort of we build a top-down hierarchical model on this assumption that the, the guy or girl who started it, they know how to do the work best. So we ought to be accountable to them and they ought to have information sort of flow down. And it takes honestly a, a you could call it servant leadership or transformational leadership or just that idea of reciprocal trust, but it takes a, a strong leader to be able to say like, no, I'm not the most important person in this organization anymore. Because if we truly want to be sustainable, we got to serve the customer. And so whoever is in charge of that, yeah. and you can, you can choose to do it yourself and try and be a very front facing CEO or, or whatever, but really it's kind of a better idea to go, no, my, my role is to serve you because you serve my customer. Yeah. And then at, at the same time, I, I completely agree with that. It makes total sense. And at the same time, you see huge organizations that were built around the unique personalities and capabilities of like a leader who built it from the ground up. And then when that leader steps away, the entire company starts to head south. I mean, I'm thinking of Phil Knight and Nike. I'm thinking of Howard Schultz and Starbucks. And like the that leader right, right. has like steps back in, right. you know, in order to sort of like, quote, right the ship. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, it, again, it stems down from this idea that, of course, that founder person, we should just always trust them. We should listen to them because they started it. Mm -hmm. Right. And they have that infinite wisdom. But again, the. Like the, the smarter leaders are the ones we've never heard yeah, of yeah. because there totally, never right. was a crisis when they stepped down. Right. You know? And yeah, I mean, we live in a world where people want to make an impact and develop a reputation and feed their ego and get the spoils of good business and all that sort of thing. So we become a very star focused culture. But the truth is that, I mean, the best corporate leader are the ones you've never heard of, mm -hmm. you know, because they put the people in the value zone first so much so that you never, I mean, until Vinet Nayir came out with a book about this philosophy, if he hadn't have done that, you would have never heard of him ever. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So you also have some interesting things to say about um, one of my favorite things in the world, which is email. 
It's your favorite thing in the world? No. Oh, talking negatively about email is your favorite thing in the world. Let's do that then. Well, yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. And I think most people these days have somewhat of a love-hate relationship with email, probably trending more and more towards hate. And it's even just the, the idea of... <laughs> Did you have AOL? I did. Do you remember how awesome it was to get email back in the AOL? Oh days? yeah, I was I mean, like, oh my god, so excited. Yeah, it's right? just a little you got mail thing. It's and like... first of all, it took so long to sign in that to sign in <laughs> right. and not hear that you've got mail was really right. depressing. I, mean, I remember hearing right. like the modem tones in the back, oh, yeah. background. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This and this was the start of the addiction, right? We yeah. got Pavlovian trained to hear right. the modem tones. The, um, you know, c- connecting, connecting. I'm going to go make my coffee while I come you've, back and right. see if I've got anything. Right. Yeah. And then, but see, if you went through all of that and then there wasn't a you've got mail, you were disappointed, right? And that was the beginning of it. And, uh, <laughs> and now actually, if somebody sends us a physical letter, we're like amazed. We feel that way about, about it. But, you know, e- email, it's an amazing invention, honestly. Um, and it's amazing because it's cheap and it's asynchronous. Right. But it's also devastating because it's cheap and it's asynchronous. Right. It's cheap to send. So we really don't think about whether or not we should send it or whether there's a better medium for it. We just send it. Mm. Right. And it's asynchronous, which is great because in in theory, that means I can send it to you at 11 o'clock at night and you'll get to it whenever. But that happens to be when I work. It turns out, though, in a work context and a lot of it is set by whatever sort of the manager does. But it turns out in a work context there's always that feeling that you need to sort of reply whenever you can, even if you're at home. Right? And so we never, we've never had, we just went from like, oh, this is great. And we readily adopted it. And we never stopped and had that conversation about like, well, hang on. When should we use this tool? When should we not use this tool? What are our communication needs? What's the best tool for it? We never had any of that conversation. And so in response to that, there are companies who are having that conversation now. And some of them are saying like, forget it. We're done with internal email entirely. And others are saying, well, we'll restrict it to certain hours. But again, it's a, it's a matter of what's the right tool for the, for the need. And so like one company I profile, Atos, had to build their own sort of, the best way to describe it is a combination of a social network and a Slack, right? And that's what worked for them. And others said like, no, email's fine, but we're going to cut it off at 6 p.m. and start it again at 8 a.m. type of thing. Again, it goes back to that conversation. We have to have a conversation about it in order to have the most effective tool. Preferably not an email conversation about it. <laughs> yeah, good point. We'll have it on Slack. <laughs> it, but it's so interesting, right? Because, you know, and, and it, I guess there have been more examples of bigger and bigger companies literally saying we're, we're killing email for the entire company. And I think a lot of people are like, but how, how can you even think about functioning? Right. If you don't have email, like right. there's, there's no, con- like you can't even conceive of being able to function like, without email. Like, my God, you have to get up and walk three cubicles down yeah. and talk to the person. And what's going to happen then? Well, what's going to happen is you're going to get up and walk three cubicles down and talk to the person. And yeah, I think we've become so accustomed to it because it's cheap and it's easy and we do it often that we don't remember what it was like before. And there are, pl- there are times where what it was like before was better. And that's what we find. Yeah. So you brought up Slack, you know, and I think, and you look at, so for those who don't know what Slack is, Slack is this sort of alternative communication tool that's an app and a tool that sits on your desktop that a lot of people use, including us and our team. And it's exploded within like the first nine months, it had a billion plus valuation. And it, the adoption rate of it has just been like astonishing. And I wonder if that's in part because it's, you know, it's people perceive it as in some way relieving some of the pain caused by email. Yeah, I mean, so the craziest, I, here's what I honestly believe it is, and it's a subtle little thing hidden in Slack. 
do you remember about two or three days into your using Slack, they sent you a thing that said, you're getting a lot of notifications. Maybe you should turn off the notification where anybody sends a message and will tell you and just do it if you're tagged. Do you remember that? No, because I start with everything turned off. So. <laughs> oh, all right. So, so you're the 1%. I am. I'm the freak. That actually turn need off to do it. But most people don't, yeah. right? So the thing that Slack basically did was it created a system where when communication ramps up, it goes, hey, we shouldn't notify you as often. Yeah. It's the only technology I've ever seen that says, let's not notify you all the time. Yeah. Right. And that's really what it is. And it's the same thing with um, Blue Kiwi, which is what Atos created. And I talk about it in the book. It was this idea that instead of interrupting us all the time, we'll just let people set it and how they want to be notified. Yeah. And you can, I mean, honestly, you can do this in Outlook or MacMail or whatever, but nobody does. We just stick with whatever the default is. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I, I was flashing back to the very first time I got a BlackBerry device and it was like this new cool thing. And everyone's like, oh my God, you get internet on your phone. And the first thing that I did was email the company. I went to the company website and I emailed them and I'm to try and find out like, how can I turn off the little footer <laughs> that says that says it's coming from like a BlackBerry because I don't want anybody to actually know. This was before it, there was an right. expectation of constant on. I, was right. like, I don't want everyone to know that I have this thing because they'll then they'll think that I'm actually able to get the email anytime and then they're going to expect that I'm going to re respond to it. And in an astonishingly short window of time, that is the absolute expectation is that, you know, it, it's just that we all have smartphones. We're all checking our phone somewhere between 150 and 300 times a day, depending on the, the study you look at. And so if I send something to you, like any time, 24-7, any day of the week, you know, you should respond to it. And that's right. so destructive. I mean, I have every push notification on my phone turned off to the extent where like sometimes if my team needs to reach me, they'll call. Yeah. Because it's the only way to get me, you know, right. and even to get me on Slack, I was the last one on my team on Slack, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, because I'm, I'm like the curmudgeonly creator. Right? I just want to be in a cave. Right? right, right. But again, I mean, so again, you're that like, you're that 1%. Yeah, you know, most, I, I realize I'm you know, not the, normal. <laughs> I mean, the, the most common ringtone on the iPhone, the one that came with it. You know, <laughs> I didn't know that. Most funny. common text. People just don't change yeah. most of it and so we're stuck with and and of course it's in the technology's best interest to notify you all the time to get you using it all the time all that sort of stuff that's what i think is so crazy about slack they were the first software type thing to say no we don't want to notify you all the time we want to okay. figure out what's the right thing for your team in how frequent they're communicating yeah which is so counterintuitive because yeah like everyone says you have to go and actually like get engagement and get usership on like multiple times a day to develop the habit Right. So that you'll stick with the app and you'll right. stick with using. Right. Yeah, so interesting. So one of the other things that you explore also, which I um, I find kind of fascinating, is the intelligence or lack of intelligence around stopping people from competing with you after. Oh, the non-compete clause it, do it doesn't work out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Take me into this a little bit. So, I mean, so, so if you don't know what a non-compete clause is, essentially like when you're hired, they can ask you to sign a piece of paper that says, if you leave, you won't work at a similar type company for a year or three years. Usually a year is about the standard. And these are pretty common clauses, actually. Oh, yeah. No, super yeah. common. I mean, Jimmy John's has one, <laughs> right? I mean, they don't. So I, I got to be careful here. I talk about this in the book. And they don't require it, but they include it in the franchisee packets in case you as a franchisee want to implement it, right? So it's optional, but they've got one, right? I mean, and it, actually in the book, I talk about a church that had one, mm. a church, you know, that said, no, you can't go work with any other church. Like, okay. And so they're, that's how common they are. And 
we don't really think twice about it because we think it's one of those things where the intention of it just makes perfect sense, right? Like we're going to invest in you. I told you earlier, it takes one and a half times the cost of somebody's salary to usually to train them. So we're investing a lot of money. We don't want you taking all that knowledge and sending it somewhere else. That turns out to be kind of short-sighted because it, it turns out that when someone leaves and goes to another firm, both firms actually benefit because now you've got this new connection to another firm. And we, we know this from looking at patent data. Like when somebody leaves one firm A and goes to firm B, when they're working at B, they're still citing patents from firm A, meaning they took some of that knowledge with them. But it turns out that firm A starts to cite patents from firm B. For They've never had an employee who used to work at B. It's just they had an employee that used to work for them. Hmm. So there's a sort of a knowledge sharing that happens because there's a network connection made now. And then there are some uh, states and there are some companies that are committed to non-non-competes. California, I mean, I think one of the primary reasons for Silicon Valley's explosion compared to a couple other places in the U.S. that were equally resourced is that people had freedom of movement. The state of California basically said, like, non-compete clauses restrict people's freedom of movement, so they're invalid. Yeah. And as a result, you get people trading around, bringing knowledge with them, but sharing knowledge back to the organization. and that sort of rising tide raises all boats. Yeah, which is so interesting too, because if there's one state where you'd figure people would be sort of like maniacally protective about, you know, like you can't leave, you can't go to a competitor. It's all like about like, you know, the intellectual right. property that we, we you develop. And part of that is always going to be in your brain still when you move on. Right. And, you know, so it's almost like there's this, you know, if that's really deeply ingrained in you, there's this disincentive to build your industry in California. If you know, like California can be like, no. Nah, <laughs> Go wherever you want. It's all good. That's true. But that's true. But the exact opposite has happened. Yeah. yeah. So um, Orly Lobel, who's a brilliant law scholar out of um, San Diego, University of San Diego, I believe, has this a lot of this research she wrote up in a book called Talent Wants to Be Free. And that's what shows up in the lab, too. Like talent actually wants to have freedom of mobility. And so, yes, you would think that we don't want this. But in reality, that's what talent wants. And so you got to do what your talent wants. And so we end up having it now. Um, Apple sort of is always the exception that proves the rule. They're sort of like mm. famously, it's famously secretive and all that sort of thing. But again, you need an exception in order to prove a rule. Every, everybody else is sort of the, the opposite in that freedom of movement, et cetera. So why are they? Uh, I have no idea. I, I mean, I'm, I shouldn't have brought them up because I knew you were going to say the why thing. And I just, I, I don't know. I yeah, really don't. Because you know, like literally every case to the exception. And yeah. like, but and now they're out there, you know, like the, the highest value. And so like, you know, so they are the exception, but they're also arguably the most successful of all of them. Oh, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, come on. There's a difference between market valuation and sort of actual lasting, tangible, sustainable value. We'll see. I mean, I... I I, I don't think I've not brought bought an Apple product in the last five years. I know, like, so as, that. as you've got like the Apple Watch on, I know I've got the Apple Watch <laughs> to turn the iPhone off before and et cetera. Right? This is an Apple mic, isn't it? This is a new. No, I'm just kidding. No. I, I I mean I honestly don't know. I think to be totally honest, I think part of the secretiveness is kind of an illusion, and there's still a lot of sharing going on inside the firm that we're just not hearing. Mm. And I think part of their secrecy is baked into their marketing and the idea that they don't need. They, you know, they started early letting places like Mac Rumors talk about them. And so then they shut down talking about themselves because it fed Mac Rumors and right. it created. I think some of it's sort of caked into marketing. Like, you know, there's there's a bunch of your Bob Sutton said it best. Steve Jobs is a Rorschach test. Right? <laughs> you, you look into Apple and Steve Jobs and you can learn whatever lesson you wanted to learn before you looked into them. And, you know, one of the famous ones is this idea that they never did market research or focus. Right, right. Bullcrap. It's like, it's like we'll you know tell I mean? the market. Right. I mean, like, but they did, right? Yeah. They listened, 
right? And they had con- and they listened through constant iteration, but they had they just had a different way to listen. It's not like they said it's not like they said we'll tell the market what it wants. No, they right. did a lot of prototyping to figure it out. Yeah, they just knew if they did a focus group, everybody would lie to them. So they found a better way to get customer feedback, but they got it definitely. Right, and the and the other thing, and, and it's it's so interesting you brought that up because I've, I've thought about this a lot because I've heard that same thing so many times. You know, like we'll tell the market what it wants, and say, like, but when you have a company with tens of thousands of employees who are also fanatical users of your product, right? Like you you don't really have to go outside, right? Exactly, because you can keep everything you know, like in your fifty thousand people and get probably all the data you'll ever yeah. need. No, exactly, right there, exactly. And you know they would they would make like on the the iPad they made they made prototypes of it in like 40 different sizes and dimensions, et cetera, and experiment around and played with it. And and exactly that they get a lot of feedback on it. The other thing is like, there's a difference between telling the market what it wants, which is like the segue, right. Between telling the market, you've solved that problem. You didn't, they didn't know they had Mm. right. One requires a deep amount of market research. I think Apple does the second one more. They, they listen to the market to figure out what needs are there. Mm. And then they say, Hey, you don't know what this is because you've never thought about this as a solution to your needs, but here it is. I mean, and the iPad's a great example. Like it was made fun of at first until everybody figured out like, no, this solves this problem and this one yeah. and this one and this one. And then you have like the segue, which literally is trying to tell the market what it wants and nobody wanted it. Yeah. Okay. So here's my question. You're wearing an Apple watch. I am. And you're wearing a Fitbit. <laughs> I am. Which is what I owned before I had an Apple watch. And I, I actually and like had to make a decision between the Apple watch and the Fitbit. And you made the wrong choice. Oh, I think I made the wrong choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one, that has less notifications. What you're talking about is sort of like the difference between telling them what they want and sort of like, you know, like predefining a need that you don't yet know that you have. Where do you think the Apple watch falls in that? I wanted, so I had a Fitbit that couldn't tell time. And so I wanted that. All right. And then actually, it, what it solves for me is the notifications problem with the phone. Uh, so I have, I don't know if I showed you this. So my wallet is a phone case. Ah, uh, got it. So now with the watch, I never need to take this out unless right, I have right, to make right. a call, right? Because I have, and I turned off the vibrations and whatever, and I have a little red dot if got I have it. a notification. And I love that because again, I check that on my terms, not, yeah. not theirs. And so that's, that's actually the primary thing it solved for me is it, it actually removed notifications, but kept my like diabolical need to feel connected at all times. Yeah. Right. Without even having to take the, the phone out of my wallet. Right. All right. I'll buy that. We're now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I started with, I wore a Fitbit for two years before the watch yeah. came out and had it not been for the Fitbit, I would have never said like, oh, this is really useful. Right. You know? And funny enough for me, which goes along with apparently my isolationist uh, tendencies, <laughs> is one of the reasons I actually like, didn't buy the Apple Watch was because, and I'm, I'm an Apple fanatic, like I love Apple product, yeah. but um, is because of my sort of maniacal rejection of push notifications. And like, so one of the big sells of the watch was, you know, like you don't have to check anything, like your watch is going to let you know. And I'm like, I don't want something else to let me know. Right. Like I want to go looking for it when I'm ready to go looking for yeah. it. So, but again, like we've already discussed, I'm very much the outlier. <laughs> When it comes to that, there's another topic that I just want to uh, jump into before uh, we sort of come full circle, because, and it kind of touches on this and the idea of secrecy in large organizations, which is, and you've spoken about this also, mm-hmm. is the idea of uh, pay transparency. And this has become a big public topic for a lot yeah. of people these days. Yeah. Take me into sort of your thinking on yeah, this. Yeah, I was, I was not expecting to be an advocate for this one, actually. Really? I'm, I'm a reluctant, re- reluctant. <laughs> I'm very reluctant. <laughs> I'm a, it's a re- new political party. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a reluctant advocate. Can I sign up? I, I know, right? 
We well, need the depending third, the depending on how the primaries right. go, we might actually want to start the reluctant party. Um, I'm reluctant about basically every person in the primaries right now. It's awful. No, so um, you know, I, I, um, I, I have libertarian leanings, right? I'm very into privacy and individual responsibility and individual freedom and all that sort of stuff. So I was expecting this idea of like, no, no, no means. It's like that's that's private information between an employer and an employee. What I found when I dug into the data is that, like, even if that's true, it's not worth it. You know, so we have, you know, the, the number one reason you would want to keep pay secret is that you're paying people different rates and there'll be chaos if they find out. They're going to find out whether you share it or not if you're paying people two dramatically different rates. Right. And this is not a new thing. This so it's like two to... people have essentially the same job. At yeah. The so you and I do the same right, thing, but yeah. you're better at negotiating. Right. During the interview. Right. Which may or may not have any relevance to the value you can bring after the fact. Right. Negotiation skills for most people are not something you need to do your job unless you work in sort of sales. Right. And so because you can negotiate and maybe I can't, you make 10 grand more than me. We do the same work. Right. I'm going to find out. Right. Even if it's secret. And I mean, this goes 1950s with John Stacy Adams. There was a thing called equity theory that he that he promoted and later research kind of proved it, that people are always looking to compare what am I getting out of the effort that I put in compared to what are you getting mm, out of yeah. it, right? So if I work 10 and I make 10 and you work 15 and you make 15, that's fine. It's not about paying people the same thing, but it's about letting people see that like your effort is being rewarded fairly. And when they perceive that as not fair, they're more likely to be distressed, more likely to slack off to try and restore equity, uh, more likely to quit, all of these sort of things. And really, the, the challenge is we're awful at judging. We're always constantly sort of looking to see what everybody gets paid, but we're awful at figuring out what it actually is. Mm. And we're awful at judging sort of one another's value contribution, right? So keeping those things secret just feeds that idea that we're awful at this. So we're destined to feel frustrated. And making them transparent in contrast says like, no, here's... Here's what John gets paid. Here's what you get paid. And here's the reason for the difference, you know, and now we can agree or disagree that that's fair and we can have a productive conversation about what's fair, right? But now I don't hate you because you get paid more. I sort of rally against the system and maybe we'll even improve it, which is what you see in a lot of the companies that go transparent. So um, and beyond that, societally, there's a lot of huge benefits. So there's a lot of research that, that suggests that the gender wage gap dramatically narrows right. um, in transparent companies. Um, women and minorities are especially like high talent, highly educated ones are more likely to be attracted to transparent companies for that same reason. They don't have to worry about this anymore. So there's a lot of benefits for it. And in the end, I'm like, okay, it may be uncomfortable to share what your salary is, but it's less uncomfortable than always worrying about whether or not you're getting a fair deal. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess, especially with the, um, like the gender uh, side of things, like, yeah. which has gotten you know, a huge amount of attention over the last couple of years. Well, I think that's, really. I mean, those two things are so related. I think that's yeah. the reason the whole conversation is happening. Yeah, I do also. So a lot of interesting topics we've touched on. There's a lot more in your book. Let's come full circle here. So uh, the name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that term out to you, to live a good life, what does it mean to you? To live a good life. I mean, we, we already sort of talked about it a bit with that idea that family and personhood are sort of at the center of it and that career is just sort of a matter of one other thing that kind of orbits the self, right? And I think that's probably what it means to, to live a good life is to figure out the proper orbits of all the different things that you keep in your life. You know, if you're your own son, what's Mercury, Venus, Earth, et cetera, et cetera, how far out or how big or how close are they? How, how big are they, et cetera? And I think honestly, that's different for everybody. Some people are way more career focused than others. 
And I think to, to live a good life is that idea that you've got to figure out what your solar system of the self looks like. And then you've got to go build it, which is the harder part because every different planet wants to be, um, this is a terrible metaphor, but you get where I'm going. <laughs> every different planet wants to be the gigantic one and you can't let that happen. You've got to sort of figure that out. And so it's, it's tailored, it's, it's bespoke. So I don't know, I can't, I can't answer that for everybody, but I've got my solar system figured out and we're orbiting. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. And you can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone. If you have an iPhone, you just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.